My 50th year had come and gone. I sat a solitary man in a crowded London shop, an open book, an empty cup on the marble tabletop. While on the shop and street I gazed, my body for a moment blazed. And 20 minutes, more or less, it seemed so great my happiness that I was blessed and could bless. This is a poem by Yeats. It's a poem about a kind of restoration, a kind of return, an upwelling of healing possibilities that are latent in every human soul and in the psyche and and in the body in a way. And here the body of, of a man and um, I guess I wanted to start with that poem because I, I want to make a part two of the father wound and not so that I can just, I don't know, um, poke something that's painful, but because some attention to the wound, to the wounds, to the wounds of our own fathers and grandfathers our ancestors, and also the ways in which we received wounds from our fathers and from the father figures and from, you know, you could even say the patriarchal culture. And of course, if you listened last time, that that phrase patriarchal is a lot more potent and pregnant with possibilities than we normally give it credit for just means rule of the father and and like Robert Bly says we're hungry for the sacred king in a time of no father and so the the rule of the father as matriarchy means rule of the mother is immature and unhealthy and has turned toward domination and and suppression and and I maybe would say out of a sense of woundedness and I don't think we can um, talk about healing without turning toward the wound without turning toward the wounds and that's in part what I would like these last you know, two podcasts to be about some attention here and some possibilities and some ways of framing things. And I wanted us to hear that, that Yeats poem, this upwelling, this fire, this possibility. I wanted us to hear that alongside D.H. Lawrence's haunting lines that I read in the last podcast, which were, Men have been depressed now for many years in their resplendent selves, in their male and resplendent selves. So where there is a wound, there is a sensitivity. And where there is a sensitivity, there is a gift. So this wound gift terrain is what is calling to me, what's luring me into these myths and stories and into the tricky terrain of the father wound 
uh, and I think last time I was more interested in the in the wounds that our fathers are carrying, the, the way in which the masculine in general is wounded. That's really what the Fisher King is about. Whereas today I'm I'm more interested in the way in which we receive the wound from our fathers or from the father figures or from the masculine or from the immature masculine, from the patriarchy. How do we receive those wounds? And and I have in mind two myths. I'm pulling from the same books as last time, Iron John and and uh, Robert Johnson's book, The Fisher King and the Handless Maiden. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, a story that comes out of Africa, about the axe and about a father and son. And that's really about how the son is wounded. And then I want to use the story of, of the Handless Maiden to talk about the daughter. And in, in doing so, I hope to just just stir the pot a bit and and offer the very beginnings of of healing possibilities here. Sometimes just consciousness around wounds is the beginning of a of a healing path. And so before I start, I want to say something about myths. You've probably heard the phrase that the map is not the same thing as the territory, or the map is not the same thing as the terrain. And and usually we have we apply that to things like rubrics or or maps or models, anything at all, like the Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram, the any kind of typology, Bill Plotkin's maps, which I'm more familiar with. It's just important to say it's an image, it's a map, and the terrain is the terrain. And so when, when we're in the terrain of life, when life is just happening to us, that's the most important thing to pay attention to what's actually the case in my own life. And and then the story or the map comes along, and in this case, the myth comes along, and it just lights a lamp in the dark forest and says, well, maybe you can see a little bit further through this image and this idea and the themes here. Or or maybe it's like a compass where the myth is, is like a compass. It's just telling you in the most general terms the right direction to walk. But you still have to walk the terrain. And and no myth will be like a one-to-one connection. Oh, the father in this myth is my father, or the wound in this myth is my wound. It's more subtle than that. It's like, it's it's bringing us into, well, actually what's happening is it's bringing us up out of a highly personalized view of our own wounds and dynamics, saying it just happened to me. And... uh and really, woe is me, and and I'm totally alone here in my woundedness. Which is a you know, I guess that's a temptation for all of us. We sort of we can even fall in love with our own victimhood in a way, and 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 its uniqueness. And I always think about Elijah the prophet, who said to God, um, "There's no one in Israel who has not bowed the knee to Baal." Like really no one. You're the only one that's righteous, you know? Well, that's, we can turn when we're too, I guess, to sound, I don't mean to sound too psychological here, but, or too Freudian, but when we're, um, when we're gripped with a, with narcissism and navel gazing and me and my and I and my story, it, it's too small. And the myth just expands it out. Like, okay, sons and daughters have been hurt by their fathers and their own fathers have been hurt by their fathers. And, and there, there are streams of wounds and wounding dynamics and, 
um, self-care systems that are, are flowing in down the canyons of time here and, and helps us in a way feel more human, like feel more connected to a larger story. So that's why I'm, why I want to share some myths here. And so I want to try to get right to the heart of the matter. I, I don't want this podcast to be too long. I realized the last one was an hour and 15 minutes and I was barely getting going. And, and sometimes I can be like that. So I want to try to be succinct here and just trust that the images and the stories can do their own work. So the first story is 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 mentioned in Iron John and it's it's an African story and I'll give you the basic outline of it. So a father and son are out hunting and the father kills a rat and gives it to the son and then he goes off into the forest to do more hunting and and the son doesn't think this is much of a kill or doesn't really count something like that and he throws it away he throws the rat away and and the father returns and asks about the rat having come back with nothing else and the son says i i threw it away and and the father strikes him with his axe right right a blow right to the head and knocks the kid unconscious and all right, so this is a way of talking about the father wound. I'll have more to say about that in a second. So what ends up happening next in the story is that the son is asleep. He's unconscious. And when he comes to, when he wakes up, it's night. And he knows what to do. He, he gets up. He sneaks into his mother and father's house, takes his clothes, and leaves and never comes back. And this is what happens sometimes when, when the blow, when we're struck by the by the blow and the next move is to leave home especially in the uh, in the father-son dynamic here which is mainly what this myth is about i'll talk about father-daughter in the next one so um yeah it's like leave i'm i i don't want to see this man again in my life and and anyway he wanders for some time until he comes upon a chief of another tribe and the chief says hey i have a secret um and I need you. Can you keep a secret? And the son says, well, what is it? And the chief says, well, I had a son that died many years ago in battle, and I want you to come and live with me and be my son, but don't tell anyone. It'll be as if you've returned. And, and the son agrees to this arrangement. And, and I'm not going to say much about this, so I'll just give a little interpretive layer, which is kind of like meeting a guru or, or a mentor or a father figure that's not your biological father that, that says, come live with me for a while and learn these ways. And, and in a way, he's experiencing a bit of the blessing from, not from his own father, maybe he feels he was just struck by a blow by his own father, but he's experienced some of the sacred king blessing, the chief blessing that Yeats is talking about in his poem, to be blessed and to bless, that, that beautiful dynamic here. And, and, and yet you, you can almost guess what's going to happen next is one day the father shows up in the village and says, I want my son back. And it's a way of saying, even if you move to California and you have your own life and you have your own family and you have your own life, you know, goals and roles and has nothing to do with the father. One day your dad is going to come knocking on the door. One day the, the, the man who swung the axe will want to settle up here. You can't outrun your wounds. You can't marry someone that will fix them. 
You can't join a community or a religious order that will uh, help you bypass this terrain. No, one day the father's going to show back up in the village and say, I, I want my son back. And, and so there, there'll be some reconciliation and, um, or the possibility of reconciliation or the possibility of, of standing face to face again with the one who leveled the axe. And so maybe just a couple of other pieces here. So uh, Bly says the rat at the beginning is a little like the father's occupation, or I might even expand that to the father's way of being, and, and we're given it. We're given it, this way of being or even this role or this job, especially in the ancient world, from our dads, and we're holding it in our hand, and we say, we don't want, it, we don't want anything to do with this, and we throw it away. You know, it's like, like if you would ask me in college, would you ever consider, you know, being a preacher like your dad and your grandpa? And, and I had already thrown the rat away, you know? No, there's no way in hell I'd stand up in front of people and receive all this praise and rejection and projection. I wouldn't have used all that language then, but I just said, no way in hell, you know? I've thrown the rat away. I don't want anything to do with that. And of course, you know, 15 years later, 10 years later, it just comes back around again and something's knocking on the door. And anyway, it's a pretty natural part of of growing up, we tend to, especially sons, reject the father. And that's why we, in traditional cultures, why we had initiators or uncles that would take us out and, and broaden our understanding of, of the sacred masculine and of the community and of the roles and even of the mysteries of the universe, because built into that dynamic, father-son dynamic, is some tension. And, and one day you're going to Really, if things go well, that's kind of way the myths work, even though it's kind of terrible. If things go well, you'll pack your bags. But don't think that you've, you've uh, transcended totally here, that you've risen above all this stuff. So, um, you know, that, that seems to be the way, the way it unfolds. So, uh, all right, I want to find some, some Bly here, some interpretations of this story, which I think is interesting. So I have been in men's gatherings, he's writing here, in which a man's attempt to deal with the axe father comes out in shouts of rage that can go on for 20 minutes. So sometimes we're so uh, out of touch with our rage around the direct blows we receive from our fathers that when it finally comes out, it comes out in, with our own rage, with an with a outpouring of anguish and grief. Most men, if asked, remember very well the, the blow the father gave them and exactly where it fell. I think this is so interesting, and I think it's a question worth, worth asking, like, well, what kind of blow did I receive from my father, and where in the body do I carry such a thing, and do I have a sense for that? And, and according to Bly, he, he said, one man says, the axe hit on the left side of my head, another on the back between my shoulders, another straight down through the top of my head, another right in the groin. Some men say he beat me when I was 13 and I'd kill him right now if he were in the room. That's, that's some dark and sobering um, terrain here. We hear vivid stories of no guidance, no support, no affection, and in their place sarcasm, brutality, and coldness. You'll never be half the man I am. We hear abandonment with a hint of murder thrown in from time to time. Okay, so this is the dark father. This is the, the stream of the sinister father in a way. This is, this is 
Darth Vader. This is um, a dimension of the wounded masculine, of the wounded father, of the wounded patriarchy that comes through like this. And it comes through as a strike of humiliation and shame somewhere. Just as uh, Bly claims that we receive nourishment from our fathers through the body, from the body of the father into our own bodies. Not so much through teachings and words and ideas and the mind, he says, but through the body. Well, you can also receive the body blow. You know, the body of your own father can, can strike your own body in a certain way, literally or symbolically. And, and we carry that. It's that. There's the wound. And, and like I said before, we tend to be wounded in the areas where we're most vulnerable. That makes just like perfect sense. Of course, the areas where we're most sensitive is where we're going to get wounded. And, and oftentimes it's the father who does this. And sometimes it's in, in a tyrannical, dark, um, um, direct way. This kind of humiliation and shame. You know, shame has a place. I don't, I think it's a natural human emotion. It's a, it's a very potent human emotion. It's part of consciousness. We, everyone experiences shame. That's why it's in the Adam and Eve story. It's just part of the human condition. And, and, and yet it can be used like an ax and come down and strike us. You know, I know as a parent, I, I mean, I have to admit, you know, shame is like a go-to parenting model, you know, that no one wants to admit that they sink into from time to time. And, and it, and it can go too far. And, and even what can appear light at first, like teasing or one-upping, you know, these are very subtle versions of the ax blow, just some teasing and some one-upping. It can be done in a loving spirit, or it can have that shadow side where it goes in deep and we receive the blow. And I think it's worth asking what, what kind of blows did I receive from, from my own father? Where's the wound? And you might have some idea of that, and you might not. And, and, and of course, Bly goes on to say that this isn't the only experience of fathers in our world. Sometimes he says that um, he hears stories of generous and supportive fathers who praised and loved and protected as best they could, even tried to initiate as best they could. You know, if I'm honest, you know, of course I receive wounds from my father, but I, I also feel largely he was pretty generous and humorous and wanted what's best for me, I think. In a way, I received his blessing, though he didn't use those words, you know, or didn't often openly affirm things. But he did in his own kind of quiet way, and, and what a gift, and this is the other stream. So one of the things that, that, that Bly pulls from this ancient African story is that the father is complex, and and we need stories that tell us such. In fact, he goes on to say, um, there is no father who will be good all the way. We deduce that from the image of the two streams, one sacred and one poisoned, which flow down not only into the physical kings on earth, but also down into our own fathers. So every father, I'm a father, but every father, <clears throat> excuse me, is fed by these streams and one sacred and one poisoned, and, and who knows if they come in equal measure. I don't know. I can't say. Maybe it is a kind of equal measure. 
He says, if we regard the father as insignificant, ridiculous, absurd, in the fashionable American way, and this is one of the things that I would like to, to fight against in my own small way, we have diminished him so far that there is no longer a place for him in the story. We've written him out of the story. Who needs a father? Who needs a father? And, and say, so that's like the myth says, one day he'll come knocking on the door. Or the opposite, if we insist he was an evil person who shamed us all the time, we fall into victimhood and there's no longer a place for us in the story. So that's making the father figure too great, so great. Um, what does Hillman call it? The, the parental fallacy. We either think too little of our parents or we think too highly of them. So it's a way of saying the same thing. So, let me see if there's another section here. Ah, yes. Mythology helps us see the dark side of our own fathers vividly and unforgettably. Understanding that we and our father exist in some great story lifts us out of our private trance. That's what I was saying about myths in general. And lets us feel that the suffering is not just personal to us. Yeah, okay, <clears throat> let's recognize that these two streams, one sacred and one poisoned, have been um, flow into the hearts and minds and psyches and unconscious realms and worlds of every man and every father, and, and it sobers us up. It's like, okay, we can't expect too much, but we should have some expectations here. And... Uh, Okay, so it is through the radiance of the sacred king, the luminous Arthur, shining down into our own father, that we are able to see his bravery and generosity. It's like, okay, he, he received something from time to time that is transpersonal. And we know that through the great poison fathers and kings like Herod and Kronos and Stalin, that we can see the father's devouring hunger, his fear of death, his insistence that everyone live in disorder. That's the dark father. I'm in disorder and chaos, and I am insisting that everyone else in this household must live in disorder. That's the alcoholic, you know, or the addict. And, um, and, and the, the figure that we cannot help look to for uh, transcendence and even eternity is afraid of death. Yeah, there's the... There's the poison stream or the dark stream. And, and, and Bly is saying, this is the way it is. It's not, I'm not asking you to say, divide the world up in between the sacred fathers and the poison fathers. I'm saying every father is fed by these streams and might find themselves in a little eddy from time to time along the bank, trapped, circling, swirling. And the whole culture may may be pulling in one direction. I'm about to go crazy with the metaphor. Perhaps the culture makes a dam here in the stream and, and diverts the sacred and, and, um, and channels the poisoned, you know, as the main water source for culture. Yeah, maybe it's like that from time to time. And, and again, uh, uh, just uh, keep in mind Yeats's powerful words that in spite of all that, sometimes, even if it takes us until our 50th year, that 
the inner fire, the inner flame, the inner vulnerability, our inner gifts, our inner sensitivities can return and we can feel blessed. Blessed by the world and blessed by the mystery and blessed by the fathers, the great fathers, the sacred fathers. And the moment we can, then we're able to bless. That's how we recognize. That's what we want from mature parents. That's what we want from mature dads, just the capacity to turn that blessing around. So, again, I'm just weaving in and out of this myth and wondering what you're hearing and what you're resonating with and what questions are arising within you. And Okay, so let's turn to the Handless Maiden. So the Handless Maiden story begins with the miller. The miller is the father in, in the figure, in the, and what's implied here is the miller of grain. And See, the miller had a lot of power in, in the ancient world because, all right, you grow the grain and and the process of manufacturing that into something useful, something to eat, was complex and, and, and required a certain amount of technology. And that's where the miller comes in. And the miller uh, really is, is the image of the industrialized father. Even before the industrial world, the industrialized capacity, the, technolo- the technological capacity of, of humankind to do um, less work, um, and still receive nourishment and sustenance. And there's a kind of bargain that takes place, as you'll see. So the miller is amazing. It's like, okay, yes, we can grind grain. We can use a, uh, an animal or, or a person and go round and round with this stone and grind the grain and save a lot of time and save a lot of money. And, and the miller is the one that then controls the prices of grain. And so, again, a lot of power. And so the devil comes to the miller one day and says, uh, I want to teach you how to, how to get even more grain with less effort. And the miller's like, well, you know, who, could, who would deny that? What's it going to cost me? And the devil said, well, it's going to cost you whatever's behind your house. And so the miller thinks, well, behind my house is, a, is an old apple tree. It really doesn't even produce that well anymore. And okay, I can give that up. So they strike a deal. And the devil says, all right, here's how we're going to do it. And he, and he sets up a water wheel in the nearby stream and and the water wheel all by itself through the you know endless flow of of water of life uh the grain mill turns automatically and this is great the miller can spend even more time hanging out doing whatever he wants and less time thinking about work but still making the same amount of money if not more so one day the devil comes back and says okay it's time for me to to collect my debt here. Remember, we made a bargain. The miller says, fine, let's go back. I'll show you the apple tree. They go around to the back of the house and who's standing there is his daughter. And he realizes the trickery. And now just a tiny bit from the Greek here, by the way, the word mechanical, mechanism, anything with that meke root means a trick. (laughs) So all technology, all mechanisms from the from the Greek language, tell us that there's a trick involved. They they always cost us something. I mean, that's probably one of the most important technological questions we can be asking right now, given the absolute explosion of technology all around us. What where's the devil's bargain here? What's it going to cost us? What's behind the house that we don't see? 
what's behind the house that we don't want to give up and we shouldn't give up, but we don't know that we've made a bargain. See, that's the kind of uh, 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 whatever. The, those are the themes, the motifs that this myth is is turning over. And how old is this myth? Oh, I don't know. 5,000 years old, maybe more. Older than Christianity, older than Judaism, older than Islam. 10,000 years old. That's how myths tend to be. They're rarefied stories that get told and retold and told and retold and change slightly here or there, depending on the culture and the language. And But the those those patterns, those symbols just ring through, you know, through time. Okay, so... Now, instead of um, just handing over the daughter, the daughter's also upset, of course. They come up with a solution. And I can't remember the version exactly because there are a couple different versions. But I think it's the father that cuts off the hands of the daughter and sort of throws them at the devil. And the devil is kind of disgusted and won't have anything to do with the daughter and and, uh, moves off. And the daughter, of course... Is the one who suffers. So now let's already start asking some questions here. What does this tell us about the father, the masculine, industrialized culture, an industrialized culture that decides what's of ultimate value? What does that do to the feminine? What does that do to our daughters? And the story is saying it cuts off their hands. They're still alive, but their hands are cut off. They can't do for themselves. They're diminished in some way. They're not allowed to be participants in the culture in quite the same way. More than that, they can't participate as their own natural selves. Like what what is what is your daughter most naturally gifted and good at? What what she would creatively make with her hands, that's the image. Whereas in the Fisher King, the, the wound was in the groin, here the wounds are in the wound is in the hands. And so the next, the only recourse is to go to the woods and weep. In a way, in a way, if our daughters go to the woods and weep, and in other words, recognize the ways in which their hands have been cut off by their dads or by the masculine or by the culture, by the dominant culture, um, then, they, then, the, then there's a chance. Uh, grief and tears are part of the path here. It's part of the path of feminine restoration. And so into the forest she goes. And, and it's a very long myth because the next thing that happens is that she's very hungry and eventually comes upon a, a beautiful orchard owned by a king, and but she has no hands. So she goes up at night and eats these pears, you know, without being able to grab them, but just eats them right on the tree. And, and the king starts recognizing what's happening like who's eating who's eating the pears these belong to the to the realm of the sacred king here and and so he spies one day hides in the in the forest and sees that it's the woman and and actually his heart is broken with compassion which whew, that's i hope that's the case when when our fathers begin to recognize um the ways in which the feminine has been cut off and is handless has a heart full of compassion instead of driving her out deeper into the forest. But anyway, he brings her in and, and ends up, of course, they fall in love and they get married. And, and he says, don't worry, I'll take care of your hands. And he makes for her the most beautiful hands 
silver hands that anyone has ever seen. And they work. They're functional. They're beautiful. And everyone comes around to see now the queen's silver hands. And, and like, what could be better than, <laughs> than the patriarchy, the rule of the father? And in this way, really the best attempt, the best, you know, this is a generative move. I know what you need, says the generative masculine king here. And and he fashions for her something beautiful that everyone loves and, and is somewhat functional for her, and but they're not her hands. So, okay, she's still the handless maiden. And now she's fulfilling certain societal roles for her that everyone likes, and she can be waited on hand and foot by servants because she's a queen, but they're not natural. And she can feel the grief of that. It's a way of saying... The culture not only will cut off the feminine here, but then decide for the feminine how she should be in the culture. Here are your hands. And everyone thinks they're great, except it hurts, you know, doesn't feel quite right. Now, both of these stories, the Fisher King from last time and the Handless Maiden, are again in the realm of the feeling function, the function of values. And I'll go one layer beneath that in the realm of instincts. Just like the groin is the image of the deeper, wild instincts, that inner flame. And, and the hands, in a way, are an image of that, too. Like a woman in her most instinctual self. Like what she most naturally will reach for. Or protect, or hold, or, um, you know, like a reflex that's been cut off. And then the culture says, well, here's, here's a beautiful version for you to, to carry around. And these hands, it's so... So anyway, uh, she eventually becomes pregnant and, and, and has a child. And, and then she's overcome with, with deeper grief. There was grief at the beginning, but now the grief is even deeper. Having children brings the deeper form of grief because she can't care for the child with her own natural hands. She has her servants to help her. And she can't feel her child because of the silver hand. She can't feel, to be interpretive, that, that instinctual layer, her own wild innocence and her actual children, we could say. Something is not natural, and, and the solution is to return to the forest. The solution is solitude. And I'll come back to this uh, solitude in just a second, but l let me read some, some Robert Johnson here, some of his interpretations. <laughs> I love this. Who pays the bills for this bargain? Generally, it is not the mature feminine, the miller's wife, for she is too hard-boiled, too canny to accept such a price, but the young feminine, the tenderest of one's feelings. It's the feeling of life of which one is unaware that usually pays the price. So he's speaking very psychologically. He's talking about really the inner feminine on, on one hand, um, but as, as our most tender places. He says that that's what pays the price. Moods, depression, and a general sense of malaise. These are the young feminine one. They're actually good, he's saying. Accepting the devil's bargain is one of the most despicable wrongs ever committed in the psychological world. To know the devil's bargains that are offered to us many, many times a day in the modern world is to begin to safeguard the young daughter or the tender feminine. 
So he's arguing for consciousness. Like that's again, the question of, of technology and of mechanisms and the trickery at what cost, at what cost, what does it cost us internally in terms of our own inner ten, most tender places? And what is it costing the feminine? What is it costing our own daughters? So we have a responsibility here to ask these kinds of questions. He says, how much can one crowd into a day? He says, this is the devil's bargain. How much can one crowd in the day? How much can I get with minimum payment? How many times in the day does feeling, the daughter's hands, take second place to practicality? So here's where the, it starts to go out of balance. How many days go by without music or the gym or a sunset walk? How many vacations are spoiled because the energy has been spent on a dozen devil's bargains before one even gets there? Yeah, welcome to, to modern life. A man who fails to carry the father role for his children, even if he has been a brilliant success in life, will send his daughters into the world as handless maidens. So I don't know. I, I don't know what that stirs up in you. It's worth thinking about. The inner level of this drama is much more subtle and difficult to trace. So the external level is a little more obvious, but the internal level is, is more subtle. And that is the wounding of the innermost feeling structure of the man himself. This manifests as bad moods, a feeling of worthlessness and incompetence, and an erosion of the values and meaning of life. To bargain away the young feminine is to lose the most precious dimension of man's life and his sense of meaning in the world. This is a sober matter and close to home and closer to home than one realizes until he begins to explore his own handless maiden within. So he's sort of saying, in case you're 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 thinking too literal about the myth, it also has this dimension of masculine and feminine on the inside and the ways in which um, our own unhealthy masculine cuts off um, our most sensitive places. Wounded feelings, hurt, loneliness, worthlessness. These are the handless maiden within a man. So I just love this. And I work with a lot of men. And here's something we talk a lot about. Wounded feelings, being hurt, loneliness, and especially this word, worthlessness, you know. He says, these are the handless maiden within a, within a man. No outer heroic action can restore meaning to a man's life if his tender feminine feeling value is damaged. So this tells you that the hero motif going out, um, action-oriented, the hero's journey, you could even say, has a certain place, a certain function. You can hear it in the Fisher King. So how does healing happen Um in that mode, well, largely through going out into the world, going on an adventure, that kind of thing. But he says, on the level of the, the, the feminine in a man here, and maybe we could say the feminine more broadly, that's not the path. In fact, the path is solitude, is what he argues for. Let me see if I can find a good section about solitude. Okay, here's the passage I was thinking of. Feminine wounds are almost always cured by being still. Now, you could say, hey, Robert Johnson, you're a guy. How would you know that? Well, well, you check it out if he's right about this. 
Feminine wounds are almost always cured by being still. A man, or the masculine side of a woman, generally has to take an outwardly heroic stance with his problems. Our mythology is full of the heroic man who mounts his white horse and goes galloping off to do the heroic deed, which is his way of addressing the wrongs of life. We are all aware of the masculine ideal of heroism, which has been ingrained in us from the medieval world to our own times, from the knights of King Arthur's Round Table to Star Trek. But woman's genius is quite the reverse. When a woman is aware of her problem, the healing comes spontaneously from the depths of her nature. Solitude is the feminine equivalent of masculine heroic action. And very obviously in the story, solitude and tears and grief are all part of the same cauldron. I mean, who would wish this on anyone? You know, I mean, it's, it's all fine to say solitude, but the loneliness that comes with it, you know, wow, that's, there's some real power here. So here's what happens in the story. She's in the woods one day with her baby, with her silver hands, and her baby falls into a stream. And the first thing she does is cry out to her servants because she's been so ingrained, it's been so ingrained in her in the you know, in the patriarchal rule of the father, even in the good kingdom, the healthy kingdom, or the healthier kingdom, with a pretty generative um, masculine figure here, it's still been ingrained in her that someone else should help. And everyone would be pleased, but she's too far out in the forest, so no one's going to come to help. And and she knows her silver hands won't work. And And so what happens is, Without any thinking, without thought, she reaches into the stream, pulls out the child, and her hands are restored. Like, well, what is this? What, how did it happen? What are the stages? What are the stages of restoration? And it, and, and it says something like, there are none. It's just spontaneous. And it happens in solitude. The instincts return with enough stillness may be mixed with grief and tears, but the instincts return. There it is. And there's nothing more powerful than a woman who has um, flesh for hands instead of silver hands. Those kinds of instinctual res responses to life are undeniable and powerful and potent and in a way scary. It's scary to the masculine. You know, it's like... Uh, um, Who's the goddess that has all the heads around her? The Indian goddess is that? Well, Shiva's the male. Who is that? It's Kali. Yeah, Kali. Yeah, that kind of, you know, deep, feminine, instinctual. There's a kind of knowing there that just comes straight from the core. And he's saying this is possible, this is possible, even in a culture that cuts off the hands of the feminine, that cuts off the hands of daughters, that sends them out into the world with silver hands, like, trust us, as long as you behave like this, you can have everything you want, but it still doesn't satisfy. And out in the forest, with no guru, no, no plan, no savior, no messiah, no man, and the instincts come back, and, they, and, and, and the, the child is saved. The inner innocence, vibrancy, vulnerability symbolized in the child is touches 
the um, the natural fleshiness of how to act in the world. Those partly what the hands represent, right from the center of her being. I mean, how beautiful. Here's a little more. The fateful wound given to the handless maiden from the uncomprehending masculine source has been eased by the same fateful quality in a feminine way. If a wounded woman can keep faith in the feminine curative power to be found in solitude, she will, as if by miracle, find her way to feminine healing. This seems foreign to our modern patriarchal way of thinking, but it is the one cure that can redeem the masculine wound in a woman. No masculine devices have the slightest effect on this specific kind of wound. You know, in part he's saying, don't expect, I'll just be blunt, don't expect a man to know um, what, what we're even talking about here. You know, the, the, the masculine will offer all kinds of fixes, even maps and rubrics and um, retreats, and <laughs> this is what you should do. Here are some silver hands to help you out with your problem. And, and here's a line from, from Johnson again. It is not an ad, admirable trait in men that they will convince women that silver-handedness is a high virtue. A man is often only too ready to keep a woman in the silver-handed state as long as it is the man who determines the character of the silver hands. One hears of a gilded cage, which is still a cage no matter how golden it might be. This is another example of domination, which is sterling silver, but nonetheless has an artificial existence for the woman. It is the artificiality that is the terrible note in the part of the story. Almost without exception, a handless maiden has resource to artificial femininity to replace the loss of her natural femininity. Everyone agrees. She's feminine according to our terms. She's playing the game, except it's not her own natural femininity. She learns the manners, customs, and gracefulness of acquired femininity, which, is, which are as brittle and metallic as the silver tea set over which she presides. <laughs> For a time, even she is pleased with this. Her whole kingdom pays her compliments and tribute for her silver-handed gracefulness, which makes such a good substitute for human flesh-and-blood femininity. An artificial function is often more prized than the natural one, but it is only a substitute and carries no human value. Okay, one more section here from Johnson. Our story is acute in providing a diagnosis and prescription for a dark drama that most modern women suffer in our enlightened times. The patriarchal world has produced for us the highest standard of living ever known, mechanical wonders and magic unknown to former generations, 747s, computers, telephones, television, global transport, things no king or emperor knew a century ago. But our story tells the cost of this bargain and gives some clues to the loneliness and subtle suffering that we carry within us. The curative solitude and the healing tears come automatically for us, for nature is aware of our suffering. 
but we do not put them in the right place or recognize their curative value. All symptoms are healing, but we, but only if we listen to them and respond, you know, and in a, in a hyper mechanized medical, um, inflated culture, symptoms are not healing. Symptoms are the problem, but he's saying it's much different on the level of the psyche. It's much different that the symptoms are, are, can actually be healing if we listen to them and, and respond to them. Tears are, tears are not necessarily an outpouring of visible tears, but maybe that subtle ache deep inside either a man or a woman. Entering the forest is not necessarily the dramatic leaving of a marriage or a flamboyant outer move. It may best be done by a change in attitude or a quiet experiment in one's life that would not be noticed immediately by an outer observer. It is healing for any person to hear the priceless heritage of our stories and find contemporary translation of their prescriptions applicable to his or her immediate circumstances, which is kind of what I'm hoping you can do. I can only take, take us so far. I'm just sort of lighting a lamp here in the forest and letting the stories shine light on the, on the terrain here. Just a little bit of light and I don't know. So I guess I want to end with, what are you hearing? What's stirring in you? What, what's calling to you? Can you describe the nature of the axe blow? Or are you aware of the ways in which your own um, flesh and blood hands have been cut off? And, and what would it look like um, to enter the forest here, to enter the, the curative, mysterious healing path and in some ways, just hearing the stories is is the beginning of it. Is um, the the attraction or the draw of of the archetypal power here begins to do its work. It's like a dream. It's like a dream. It works on us over time. It's it's um, he calls it prescriptive. I think myths myths are less pers- prescriptive because I don't know. They're kind of subtle and. But they're offering possibilities. They're, they're dropping seeds in the human heart and in the human mind and the human soul here. And I'm hoping they'll, they'll be watered in just the right way. I think we can allow ourselves to be drawn to a dimension of the story here that has some personal resonance. I mean, maybe, maybe you're in a spot where you're, it's time to gather your things at midnight when mom and dad are asleep and slip out the back door. Or maybe you're at the point of the story where you've met a chief or a leader or an elder and it's time to pretend for a while he's your father. And, or you're maybe at, you're at a place in life where the father's knocking on the door again and, hey, remember me, and, and it's time to face the wound. Or, or like in The Handless Maiden, maybe... Maybe you're seeing for the first time the ways in which the masculine or your own father or the culture more broadly has cut you off from your instincts. And, and the first thing is to let the tears come. Say, I can't live, with, I can't live in the Miller's house anymore. You know, the, both stories have that in common. And I can't live here. I can't live around someone who would trade uh, 
trade what's natural and beautiful and subtle and full of feeling and tenderness for the machine. I can't, I can't be around this and, um, and I got to get out of here and I'm going to go to the forest with my tears and, or maybe you're feeling that your own silver handedness, like, all right, my life has worked out pretty good, but on someone else's terms and there's something unnatural here. And maybe I don't need to do the dramatic thing and, you know, blow up my work life and my marriage and my family and, um, but I, I can, I can find some, some stillness. I just got back from a wilderness within intensive where we did a one day fast and two night solo and a one day fast. And I mean, I just have come to believe and see how powerful solitude is, especially in a sacred context, like an, like an intensive where we're we're all having a similar conversation. We're creating, co-creating a kind of sacred container, and the world itself is, is, is a container that wraps us in it. And nature helps the tears come and mirrors back to us our own depths and our own instincts. We are as natural in this world, on the earth, as any tree or flower or insect or or black bear. I saw a beautiful black bear real up close. He snorted at me. I thought it was a deer because deer will sometimes snort at you. And out from the green uh, camouflaged dark forest stepped a bear after, after warning me, you know, like, yeah, we're, um, that's a human talk about feeling fully alive. Like what's, what's saying? I, Irenaeus say, the glory of God as a human being fully alive. Yeah. And anyway, nature as a, as a, as a, a place for us to, to grieve and to tell our stories and to empty ourselves and to receive the kind of give and take like the breath. So, um, I don't know, maybe you're in that kind of place where not even by a choice of your own, you found a kind of solitude and stillness and, and it doesn't feel good. And um, Johnson is sort of saying, if you can hang, hang out there long enough, your own instincts, your own capacity to do spontaneously returns because nature and the mystery doesn't give up. You know, it's like, it's amazing that Jung even calls it the transcendent function, this, this capacity to transcend, to grow, to um, to aid, to touch our wounds in, um, with compassionate and loving hands never stops. It never leaves us alone. Every night when we go to sleep, the, the, the dream world enters and does its alchemical um, work. And anyway, I just, I'm just inviting you to, to feel into where you might find yourselves, um, find yourself in this story. And and I want to uh, just end where, where I began with, with the eights again. It's good to hear a poem twice. In my 50th year, or my 50th year had come and gone. I'll just interpret. <laughs> my 50th year had come and gone. Man, late, late in the game here, thanks. I sat, a solitary man, in a crowded London shop, an open book, an empty cup on the marble tabletop. And you might wonder at this point, wow. 
How lonely can you get here? Alone in a coffee shop with an open book. And he says, but the, something else happened. While on the shop and street I gazed, my body for a moment blazed like there was a return, something long hidden in the center of the forest was blazing again. My body for a moment blazed and 20 minutes more or less it seemed so great my happiness that I was blessed and could bless. <laughs> <laughs>